Well, welcome everybody to Fellowship Church. Really glad that all of you guys could join us, your families. We uh, definitely enjoyed our morning service, and of course the morning service goes out online. But uh, the evening service always just seems like a little bit more, a little bit more intimate, a little bit more just, you know, the core group of people getting together. So for those of you that uh, haven't noticed, I'm not Anthony, and <laughs> um, Anthony asked me to speak uh, this final Sunday of 2020. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nate Amerson, and uh, my wife Elaine is the director of growth here at Fellowship Church. Uh, she's not here with us tonight. She said uh, she already heard me speak once, so she didn't need to hear it again. I said, I said that's fair. Um, I just want to put in one more plug. I know, I know Tim already announced me, but just one more plug for the equip classes. This is such a great opportunity to invite friends, invite neighbors. And maybe you know somebody, coworker, who wouldn't ordinarily come to church or wouldn't come to church for churchy stuff. Um, but maybe they would come for one of these classes that are more along the line of um, self-development and growth. Um, and they'll be, they'll be Bible-based. They'll be Christian-based, of course. Uh, Dr. Manick is just a genius, and he's doing the, um, like, uh, behavioral health, uh, really, really self-care. Um, and I, I think that's something that's so important. He's going to do an incredible job. Um, Elaine and I have the opportunity to present, or more like to, uh, to host a discussion. That's what I want it to be, is a little bit more interactive. And we'll be looking at uh, marriage, communication issues in marriage and some of these types of things. Um, but then more importantly, it's, um, it's, it's fellowship time to get together. We're going to have a meal, and so it's just an awesome opportunity to just grow more together as a church body, as well as, like I said, that opportunity to invite maybe those friends or coworkers as well. So uh, going into the new year, uh, for me, is always a time of reflection and always a time of thinking back over the course of the year and the things that it's brought, um, and... And this one's, been, this one's been a tough year, hasn't it? This has been a challenging year. This has been a difficult year. Uh, and so many of us have been, I think every one of us has been affected, and some of us in uh, just more deeply personal ways than others. Um, you don't have to raise your hand, but uh, just some of the issues, some of the challenges that we face throughout this year is we may have lost friends, we may have lost loved ones to this disease. We might, we might have lost uh, businesses, or you know somebody who had a small business and they went out of business or they w went bankrupt. There's been other challenges. That's just um, some of the more serious ones, of course, from COVID. But every one of us has been affected and just that, that word in itself, COVID, just encapsulates 2020 in my mind. And all of the challenges that we faced as a result of it, it's been, it's been very difficult. It's been, it's been serious. Um, on top of COVID, COVID's not the only challenge we faced this year, right? 
How about wildfires? This is something unprecedented here in this area. And you might know somebody who's lost a home or lost a business as well to natural disaster. We have these wildfires that we've been facing. We have entire communities right here near us that are, are basically gone and just ravaged by wildfire racing through unchecked. And these are just all the things that I've been thinking about reflecting on 2020 um, and just some of the just some of the real difficulties that we face this year. And I don't want this to be depressing. I don't want this message to be a downer. But we have to face the fact that pain and loss and suffering are a part of our lives. And this year has particularly brought that home to many of us. So we're going to take a look at what this means. But I want to end on a note of hope. Because I really believe that there is always hope, no matter what the situation is that we might be facing. So with that in mind, and as I was thinking about this message, thinking back, you know, sort of reflecting back on 2020, I uh, was driving back from Portland to Salem. I have to go back and forth periodically. And was passed by a Suburban with a race car on the trailer. And a bumper sticker on the trailer said, Racing is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. I, <laughs> I thought, well, that can't, that can't be right. Um, and, and I was right. That's not right. Because, uh, guys, it's got to be football, right? Or, 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 or what, skiing? I don't know, snowboarding? Making crafts? Playing the bass? There we go. <laughs> I had to get a yes eventually. Right, but what, what are those things in your life that you enjoy that are a blessing to you? Um, those, are all, those are all good things. Um, but they're not necessarily proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Because, see, in that statement, it made basically three statements, only one of which is 100% true all the time. And so we have to look at what does that mean and how does being happy associate with the problems that we face and the loss and the difficulty. So we really have to go back to the beginning if we're going to understand the problem with pain. Because when we look at that, at that phrase, racing is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy, um, we have to look around and say, well, if God loves us and wants us to be happy, why are we not happy? Why are we faced with pain? Why are we faced with loss? Why are we faced with real difficulties and suffering in this world? And we have to unpack that a little bit. And we have to say, well, if God loves us and wants us to be happy, but we're not happy, does that mean God doesn't love us? And I think that all of us know the answer to that deep in our hearts. But there's times when you might feel that way. You really might feel that because of the things that you're going through or that I'm going through in life, that it's because God doesn't love us. And we have to remind ourselves of not just the scriptures, but the many, many examples in life that uh, God was taking care of you during the times, the ups and downs and difficult times that you've been going through. And just a couple examples from the scriptures to answer this question, Ab does does God love us or are, are we unhappy because God does not love us? 
Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So that says not just that God loves us, but that he made an eternal promise of love to us, a covenant. God keeps his promises. God promised to love, and he loves us. Another example from the Psalms, how priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge under the shadow of your wings. That's from Psalm 36 and verse 7. How priceless is your unfailing love. And here the psalmist is just speaking out loud a reminder of that promise that God made us, that covenant of love that he made to all people. And people are sheltered underneath the wings of, like imagining God as, uh, you know, sort of a mother hen shepherding her chicks. It's because of God's unfailing love that people take refuge in the shadow of his wings. Another example from the New Testament, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this has to be an example of the greatest love. The deepest, most personal love that God could show to us to fulfill his own covenant of love and the unfailing love that the psalmist talked about would be to send his son to live on the earth, to die and take our place as a sacrifice for sin because while we were still sinners, there was nothing we could do about our sin. And there still is nothing that we can do about our sin. All we can do is accept Christ's sacrifice for that sin, which God sent him to earth to accomplish, and that Christ chose to accomplish that act while he was here for each one of us. That is the greatest example of God's love for us. So it's clear that God loves us, right? We have to say God loves us. But if God loves us and wants us to be happy, and God loves us, then why are, why are we not happy, right? It's not coming together. Why is there still so much pain? Why is there still so much suffering in the world? And see, this then is the problem with pain. And it affects each one of us on a personal level and in different ways at different times. But throughout our life, we're all going to experience those times of difficulty and of pain and of suffering. It's part of, it's part of our life. And this problem with pain is called theodicy. And theodicy is a philosophical term. And while it's often termed or equated with the problem with pain, what theodicy really means is the problem with God, or what we should think of it as the problem with our perception of God. Because this is going back to the fact that, well, if God loves us and wants us to be happy, and we're not happy, but we know that God loves us, then there's some kind of problem out there. So theodicy is the problem with pain, or like I said, the problem with God, or the problem with our perception with God. And this was first laid out in 3rd century BC by a philosopher named Epicurus. And Epicurus basically broke down the argument like this. If God is willing to stop the pain of the world, but is not able, then he's not omnipotent. If God is able, but not willing, then he's not all good or all loving. If he is unwilling and unable, he's not God. And if he's able 
and willing, why is there pain? So this was how he broke that down, that observation. And we have to, we have to respond by stating, well, what we see is that God is willing and he's able. We see that in scripture. We know that he loves us. But if he is able and willing, why does pain exist? And to understand that, we have to return back to the beginning, to creation and in the garden. So you see, originally the way God created the world was in a state of bliss. Everything was good. Adam and Eve were created in the garden. They had everything that they needed. They had each other. They loved each other. They had fruit and food from, of all different kinds from the Garden of Eden. And most importantly, they had an intimate relationship with God because it says that he like came down and walked and talked with them in the garden. So they had what they were created for, and that was that relationship with God. However, they also were presented, God gave them one choice, and we all know, because human nature being what it is, they made the wrong choice, right? And what happened was that in a sin of pride, the first people in the garden felt that they could know as well as God, they could be as good as God, they could think as well as God, and so they made that choice that was presented to them and ultimately sinned because God had told them, don't do it, but of course he gave them the choice, and that's the, the important thing. So then, from then onward, all the people that came after that, down to you and I today, are subject to what we call original sin. That original sin continues to be what damages us and fractures us today, what makes us give in to temptation and lust and pride and do evil things to each other. And not, not just on a human-to-human -human level, but it's ultimately what makes the world fractured. And so sin, because it came into the world, has created this world that is far from the perfection that God had originally intended in the Garden of Eden. And so in this way, evil and pain now become part of our world and, in fact, part of our human nature. Because what do we see immediately after Adam and Eve sin? They're expelled from the garden. They're faced with hard work. They have to find all their own food. Women have pain in childbirth, right? All of these are immediate effects that came from that act of sin, from that wrong choice, and ultimately from giving into our human nature and to pride and thinking that they could be as good as God. They could think and know as well as God. And ultimately, the bliss of the relationship that they had with God was what was damaged. Because God, you see, is completely holy. And God exists outside of our world because he made our world. He exists outside of time because he created time. He's the Lord of all of these things. And so he exists in his holiness completely outside of the world that he created. But also because he's holy, he can't have interaction with things that are broken and damaged and sinful. That goes against his holiness. So because of that, that was why they had to be expelled from the garden. It was why death came into the world was because God couldn't have flawed and sinful people 
living forever, as was apparently the original intention. So all of these are effects that come from that first choice that human beings made in the garden. And ultimately, what we see is that human beings are born self-serving. And this is, I think, the underlying sin that creates all the other sins, is that we're, we're just naturally selfish. We come out of the womb day one looking to take care of number one. And it's obvious, and you see it with your kids right from day one. Um, of course, you know, as parents, we are called to serve and care for our children and raise them. But man, it doesn't take long before that sinful and selfish nature really reveals itself. And that's how we all are right from the beginning. So evil and pain are now part of our world because of sin. Human beings are selfish. And more than that, the world itself is fractured. The world itself, the nature and the created order, no longer represents the perfection that God created in the beginning. And this is what causes things like natural disasters and floods, fires. And it's because the world itself is not the perfect world that God created. I have a quote here from C.S. Lewis, and I, I drew quite a bit from C.S. Lewis from a book that I've read several times. Um, and he actually wrote a book called The Problem with Pain. And uh, it really outlines a, a number of these arguments in quite a bit more depth. I really recommend that you read it because C.S. Lewis is just awesome. He's a genius. Um, but C.S. Lewis says, It is men, not God, who have produced racks, whips, prisons, slavery, guns, bayonets, and bombs. It is by human avarice or human stupidity, not by the churlishness of nature, that we have poverty and overwork. But there remains, nonetheless, much suffering which cannot be traced to ourselves. So in that, he speaks to the evil that comes from evil people doing evil things. But then there's more than that. Sometimes by our own best intentions, bad things happen to other people that we didn't expect or we didn't intend. And then beyond that, he goes on to talk about the fact that the created order now is also damaged as a result of sin, and that's where natural disasters, or what, what we might call acts of God, right? But they're not acts of God. They're acts of nature, and nature is just much bigger than us. So that's how we think of them. So human beings are inherently self-serving. Evil came into the world. The world is damaged and fractured, and that was not God's plan. We already talked about how he created the perfection of the garden and of the world from the very beginning. And so not only was it not God's plan in the beginning that we would have sin and death and fractured humanity and fractured uh, nature and created order, but it continues to not be his plan. So you see there exist reasons for hope because God's not taken by surprise when human beings created the first sin or caused the first sin. God wasn't taken by surprise and continues to not be taken by surprise because his plan is still in effect. So we alluded to the fact earlier that Romans 5.8, this is how much God loves us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, you see, is God's plan because what it takes to undo all of the sin of humanity is it took a perfect sacrifice that God was willing to accept in our place for that sin. 
And so God himself came to earth during this season that we celebrate now called Christmas, right? Came as a baby, lived a human life. Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% human being at the same time. He lived just like you and I live, faced with temptation, but he never gave in to sin during the entirety of his life. And so then when he chose to fulfill God's call for him and go to the cross, all of the sin of humankind from Christ's present all the way to the past, all the way to the future, including our sin today, was placed on Jesus who was the perfect sacrifice because he was sinless and he chose to give himself for us. And that fulfilled God's, remember, covenant of undying love, of unfailing love. Jesus, in that moment, by taking the sin of the world upon himself, fulfilled that covenant that God had of love forever for his people. And that in itself is a reason for hope. There's more, there's more reasons for hope, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Now, everything that we're talking about is not to, not to undo the fact that suffering exists or, or discount your individual pain or loss because pain exists and it's painful and it's personal. And whether it's the loss of a loved one or a child or you see somebody suffering or that friend who loses their business or loses their home to a wildfire, this is real suffering. And I don't ever want to discount the fact that people are going through really difficult things that are deeply personal and deeply painful. I just want to cling to those bits of hope that we have that can get us through those times of difficulty. So we have to look at the fact that we already established that God loves us, right? Not only does God love us, but God knows everything. He knows what's going to happen. He knows everything that's happened in your life and my life on an individual basis because he was there. Remember I said he exists outside of time, so all of God can exist everywhere at once. He knows what we've been through. A couple of scriptures on this. We look at Psalm 147 and verse 5. It just says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. So he's great and powerful, but not only that, his understanding has no limit. God knows what's happening in the world. And he knows what's happening to us individually. Again, in the New Testament, in the book of Romans 11 and verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? So again, asking these rhetorical questions that state, nobody can give counsel to God because he's the only one who knows all things. He's the only one who exists um, in that transcendent level, right? That goes beyond each of our immediate lives and momentary considerations. Not only is God all-knowing, but he's also all-powerful. In Genesis 17, 1, God presents himself with this title. And he just states, I am God Almighty. This is his self-reference for himself. It's his title for himself. I am God Almighty. Simple, to the point, and if that's how God presents himself, 
That's how we should also think of him. He is God Almighty. Again, from the Psalms, very simple and straightforward. Psalm 115 and verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. So again, this is speaking to the fact that God can do and does do. He can do all things, and he does do whatever pleases him. So not only is God, you know, way out there. He exists in this other place. But he's imminent to our world, and he's powerful to reach into and affect our world. And because he loves, and he's all-knowing, and he's all-powerful, God is able in miraculous ways, in providential ways, to affect each of our daily lives. And it's because he cares that he's willing to do that. And I bet that if you look back on your life, you might see a time when God has actually intervened in a miraculous way. And he's come into our world because he loves and he cares for each one of us. And so God knew that sin would enter the world. We talk about how it wasn't his plan from the beginning. He planned for it at the time and knew all the way through history what would ultimately culminate with Jesus and his sacrifice. And then all we have to do today is accept that sacrifice. We literally, all we have to do is say, God, I know that as a human being, I'm full of sin. I don't do what you've told me to do. I'm tempted. I give in to temptation. But I know that your son gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice. Please forgive my sin. And God, in that moment, when you say that, looks at you as though there was no sin in you, that there was no evil that you had done or no temptation that you had given into because the sacrifice was already made. And this is how God, in his providence, that's his ability to reach into our world, gives us the gift of the sacrifice of Jesus, and there's other times when he reaches in in a more miraculous and personal way and can interact with our world to save us or to alter or to change some of that pain and suffering that we might, that we might face. And you might say, well, this is small comfort. This is small comfort when we see children suffering and people in poverty and friends and neighbors that are affected by COVID and affected by wildfires and any of the vast variety of evil and pain and suffering that we can think of in this world. You can say, okay, well, everything that you've talked about is, it's not much comfort. And, and that's true. But what I, what I want you to come away with today is that glimmer of hope. If we give up hope, then there's no reason to not live in despondence and depression and anxiety. But we're not called to that life because we have the hope that God has given us. So we have to go back to the very first thing that we said. If we know that God loves us, then does he not want us to be happy? So that's the second question that we have to ask because we still see the pain and the suffering and the hurt of the world, right? And this is a difficult answer, but I want you to be prepared to think about maybe God doesn't want us to be happy. And, and that sounds harsh, right? We know God loves. We know God cares. We know God is intimately involved in each of our daily lives. 
Does God not want us to be happy? Well, we have to unpack that a little bit because, first of all, we have to recognize that our definition of happiness is not necessarily God's definition of happiness. Because he's all-knowing, because he sees all, God knows what he wants from our lives. And the things that we think give us momentary happiness, um, getting a raise, having uh, a nice car, having a house, having food, kids, family, and all of those are good things. Those are blessings. We have to know that they're blessings from God because the book of James also says that every good thing that we have comes from God. So I'm not saying any of those things are negatives, but when we're happy in and of ourselves, when we're in that situation where we're doing pretty good, I'm feeling pretty good about where I'm at, our tendency as human beings is then to rely on ourselves for our self-gifted happiness and to stop relying on the God of the universe who created all of the situations that allowed us to be in that situation in the first place. And we lose track of God's blessing because when we're doing pretty good, we tend to think, again, because we're prideful human beings, that we can keep doing pretty good because I worked hard to get here or I worked really hard to get that new car that I have or whatever the case might be. And that is probably true too. But when we're happy, when we're in that, especially in you know more of a material state, we tend to lose track of the God who gave it all to us in the first place. It's in those moments that we're unhappy, that we're really faced with the difficulties and the loss and the suffering of the world, that we are brought back to the position where we have to recognize that there's a much higher power in the world than us, and we have no choice but to ask him for intervention in his providential way in our world. And God does not always answer those prayers, right? We have to know that, and we have to admit the fact that we've prayed for a sick child who never got well, right? Or we've asked for a particular blessing for ourselves or our friends that never materialized. So in that moment, we have to also go back to the fact that God is all-knowing. Yes, he's able to do what we ask, but he doesn't always do what we ask because in his transcendent state, he knows what's good for us. And ultimately, this is what I would say, is that God doesn't necessarily want us to be happy. What God wants is for us to be in relationship with him. When we're in relationship with him, then we're happy. But when you flip it around the other way, our way of getting there is not always what is best for us because God wants to return back to that blissful state that we were created for and we were created for that relationship in the garden. God wants us to return to relationship and ultimately that's the most important thing for him as he directs our lives and it needs to be what we think of as what we're striving for in life is a return to that relationship. So if we can do that during the good times when things are going well, if we can remember that the most important thing in our life is not the fact that things are going well, but the fact that God wants us to relate to him, then we can be happy. But if we can remember that during the bad times, when things are not going well, and when we're faced with the hurt and the loss of this world, 
then we can still be happy because God loves us and wants relationship with us. And if you remember that that was what we were created for in the first place, even through the difficult times, then we are back in the place that God wanted us to be in, and that's in relationship to him. So this can seem like a paradox, and it, and it kind of is, but it's just a different way of looking at our lives, and that is from a little bit more distanced perspective. And sometimes that can be extremely difficult. And again, I don't want to say that anything that I say today is an easy answer to not feel pain, because it's not. We will feel hurt and loss and suffering and difficulty in this life, again, because of the sin that we brought into the world and because of the sin nature in ourselves. So I'm not trying to give you a trite and easy answer, because we will still face the suffering in difficult times. The most important thing is, what is our response? What is our response to those difficult times and the suffering and hurt that we feel in the world? I'm going to take a quick drink. I'm going to close with three examples, um, three stories or vignettes that can help us understand some of the ways that we can respond to those difficult times and those times of hurt and those times of loss. In the Bible, there was a woman named Naomi. Naomi and her husband and her two sons, they had to leave Israel during a time of famine because there wasn't enough food. They leave Israel and they go to a foreign country. They go to Moab, which is basically right next door. While in Moab, the two sons marry Moabite women and they're a happy family for about three verses. And then all the men die. Naomi's husband dies and her two sons both die. So she's faced with this terrible loss of family, terrible loss of provision. And 10 years go by, she decides to return to Israel. One of the daughters-in-law stays, one of the daughters-in-law comes with her and sort of becomes like that one thing that Naomi is clinging onto, like the one good thing that she has in life after, after facing some serious heartbreak and loss. When she goes back, the women of the community that she used to live in recognize her, and they say, oh, Naomi's returned, Naomi's returned. And Naomi says, don't even call me that anymore, because her name means blessed. Naomi means blessed. And she says to the women of her community, don't even call me that anymore, because I'm not blessed. I'm bitter, because the Lord's hand has been bitterly against me. And this is her response. And in a lot of ways, I can't blame her because that would be anybody's response to dealing with these difficult issues that we face and the hurt and the suffering that she went through of losing family members. But her response was such that she had to change her name. She's like, I can't even think about being blessed. Don't call me that anymore. Call me bitter. And then... She blames God for everything that had been going on in her life. She says, because the Lord's hand has been bitter against me. That could be one response in our human way to the pain and suffering that we face. Um, and, and like I said, it's hard to blame her because anybody could feel bitterness from the loss that she faced. 
I'd like to give another example, and this is from an interview that I heard recently um, with a guy named Brian Head Welch. And Brian Welch was the guitarist for a fairly popular uh, little band that some of you may have heard of called Korn. Korn, uh, if you haven't heard of Korn, Korn is, or maybe was, they're probably on the tail end of their career, but at the time of this story was an incredibly popular metal band. And at the time of this story, it was about 15 years ago, but Korn and the band was on the ascend. They were signing huge contracts. They were playing huge arenas. They were metal gods. But at the same time, Brian is headed down to the lowest that he's ever been. And he's just tanking. He's in depression, anxiety, can't sleep. He's got drug and alcohol problems big time. He's got family problems. And at this time that he's at his lowest, he has this powerful encounter with God and winds up giving his life to Jesus. And basically because of what the band that he was previously part of, what they stood for, and this is, you know, it's rock and roll lifestyle. It's, it's all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He felt he had to step away from that because of his newfound belief in Jesus. So he loses his income. He loses his identity. He'd been in this band since he was a teenager. Um, he's in drug and alcohol rehab. He, um, his daughter uh, comes to live with him, and he doesn't really know her, so he's a single dad, and he's never been there for her throughout his whole life. She's going through emotional and psychological problems, naturally. And in this low, low time, when Brian Welch has faced the most difficult circumstances, so one other thing that's going on is that he's really on fire for God. And he's a talented musician. He doesn't want to leave music. So he wants to make Christian music. And as you can see from his appearance, unfortunately, he wasn't readily accepted in a lot of Christian circles. And anybody who knew anything about corn would be like, yeah, I don't think so. And that's a little bit sad, okay? Is that's, that, that can be a judgment on ourselves as the Christian community. But he wanted to make music, and he wasn't accepted because he's all all tatted up and the dreads and everything. Wrong appearance, right? But in this low, low time that he's going through, his observation about that time and about that experience was through suffering, God is forming Jesus in us. And Brian Welch is not college educated. He's not a theologian. But what he makes is a really simple observation, a really faith-filled observation that it's through the difficulties and the suffering that we face that God can actually form Jesus in us. So that most holy person who gave himself, and we now know that the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, God can form the person of Jesus in our hearts so that we live and act like him. But it takes the difficult times, and it takes the crucible of suffering to get there. One more story, and this story is about, also from the Bible, this story is about three Hebrew princes that are kidnapped and are taken from their homeland into Babylon, and there they're raised as Babylonian princes, but they're completely separate from their homeland, from their culture, from their parents. They really only have each other in terms of 
of you know, common bond with, with fellow countrymen. They're distanced from their places of worship and the culture of worship that they were brought up in. You know how it is. You go to another country, even just for a week. After a while, you want a cheeseburger, right? Same thing with these guys. They're completely cut off from the foods that they like and their community and their places of worship. In time, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, builds a huge gold statue, and he wants everybody in the kingdom to come and bow down to the gold statue because in his pride, that makes him feel good, makes him feel like he's doing his worship to his false god, right, in Babylon. And our three Hebrew princes, which, although they're Hebrew names, are actually mentioned in the story, one time, throughout the rest of the story, they're only referred to by their Babylonian names. So even their identity is on the chopping block here. So our three princes are named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they tell King Nebuchadnezzar, no way, not happening. We are not going to bow down to your big golden god. We're not doing it. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no problem. Then I'm going to throw you in a huge fiery furnace and burn you. And... Our three Hebrew princes respond in that moment with such faith and with such confidence in their God, and this is what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And... He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So this simple statement that they make is so filled with faith because on one hand they say, our God that we serve, we absolutely know that he is able, he is capable of saving us, of rescuing us from the fiery furnace that you want to throw us into. He is absolutely capable of doing that, and that is their sense of confidence. They know that. But not only do they know that God is capable, they know that he does not always do what we want in this world in different circumstances. And so their second act of faith and statement of faith is to say, but even if he does not, even if he does not rescue us, our faith in our God is not shaken. That is the confidence that they hold on to, knowing right up until the very end that God is able to rescue them, and even if he chooses not to, we continue to serve him because that's their God. That's the God that they had faith in. So as Ryan and the team are coming back, and we'll just close with a few thoughts here. We've looked back at this year. We've looked back at the challenges. And the problem with pain is, is very real. It's very real and very personal to each one of us. But what it ultimately comes down to is, what is your response? What is my response to those dark times, to those dark moments, those moments of real suffering and real loss that you might feel? 
God wants us to be in relationship with him. And that's why he provided the means through Jesus Christ for us to be able to, our sin be canceled out and for us to return to that place of intimacy and relationship with him. All we can do or all we have to do is accept it. We don't, have, we don't have to accept it, right? And a lot of people don't. But in recognizing that some of these responses, Naomi's response of bitterness, Brian Welch, his response that through suffering, God is forming Jesus in us, that's a better response. We can always be bitter and depressed, despondent, and full of anxiety. But that's not what God's called us to because he's called us to that relationship with him, which ultimately, if we understand that that's the purpose of God, that should make us happy. And that goes back to the very first question that we asked right at the very beginning. So let's just close with a word of prayer, and then, Ryan, I'll turn it back over to you. Father God, thank you so much for the time that we've had today. Lord, thank you for every person that's here who wants to know you more. Lord, throughout our lives, we've all gone through these dark times, times of difficulty, times of pain, and times of loss. And we understand that although that might be part of our human nature and it might be part of the fractured world, it's not ultimately what you intended and that what you want is for us to be in relationship with you. You provided the only means that exists for that relationship to be put back on a right path. So Father, just for everyone here today, I ask that you remind us of your goodness and remind us of your greatness and remind us of your love so that even when things are difficult and things are dark, we can be reminded of the relationship of love that you deeply want to have with each one of us and we can turn to you as God our Father and just lift up our hand and say, God, help me. Help me through this time or help my friend through their time of difficulty. And you answer. You answer that prayer. Lord, thank you again for everyone here. And as we close the book on 2020 and anticipate a new year, 2021, I just ask that God blesses each of you and that you remember the God that loves and cares and is intimately involved in each of our lives as we go through the difficulties that the next year might present.